Stay hungry, stay foolish. Stephen Covey once said, most people do not listen with the intent to understand, they listen with the intent to reply. Today's guest is author of six books, including Boomerangs, Engaging the Aging Workforce in America, and Stagnation, Understanding the New Normal in Employment. His new book, The Samurai Listener, applies the skills of the samurai to business strategy. He is president and principal of PDS Tech, Inc., one of the largest engineering and IT staffing firms in the U.S., Welcome, Stephen Cash Nickerson. Thank you. It's great to be here. Cash, it's great to have you on the show. I really enjoyed The Samurai Listener, and I'm sure our listeners are intrigued to know how you came up with the story. But before we go into the art, the martial art you talk about, which is listening, it'd be great to get a context of who you are and how you learned these lessons. That's a really interesting question, and thank you again for having me here. I have to say that in some ways, I think I'm very common, and in some ways, maybe unusual. It's a uh, martial arts is a is a terrific hobby, and it's a hobby that I've engaged in my whole life. And of course, business uh, is my primary avocation, and I uh, didn't recognize until later in life the similarities in terms of skills that one could really gain by sort of looking at the insights between the two and the comparisons between the two. I was uh, training one time, the real light bulb went off when I was training in the Russian martial art. And I realized that this person, you know, this advanced instructor could anticipate my every move. And I figured out that he was sensing me and taking me in in a much broader way. He was listening to everything about me. And kind of simultaneously, I've been thinking, how, how were the successful people in my life? You know, what, what did they have in common? And I realized they weren't the number one lawyer. They weren't the number one accountant. They weren't the number one, let's say, entrepreneur. But they had these sort of soft skills. And people now are focused on these things uh, kind of intently. You'll hear things like emotional quotient, EQ, as opposed to IQ. You know, and I, I just realized, you know, we really don't teach these soft skills, these skills of communication and teamwork and listening. But if you think back to who's been successful in your life or look at who's successful, these people are generally the leaders are soft skills experts. They're people who have mastered these soft skills, and yet there's no formal teaching mechanism. So, um, this book came out of me uh, kind of observing what made successful people in business and then witnessing those same skills in the very intense environment of martial arts. You know, if you don't listen in a meeting, if you don't listen in the workplace, you know, what's the big deal? Well, you know, over the long run, not being good at those soft skills means you're not going to be the one who's more successful. But in the martial arts context, not paying attention, not listening, not getting the broader picture, not getting the big picture, you know, you're going to get hit. You're going to get hurt. So focus and concentration are kind of hallmarks of those martial arts. And anyone who's watched the martial arts movie or watched martial arts at work can see the sort of intensity and the, with which people are observing and taking each other in. Now I thought, you know what? 
transfer those skills to the workplace, teach people those skills in a workplace environment. And that's how you're going to help people be more successful and get ahead. And you tell us about one of your early encounters with these soft skills or the lack thereof. You talked about an early performance review that you experienced. You were technically great. You were killing it, but you had soft skill issues. Yeah, I didn't. Again, in, in, I went to law school, business school, you know, undergrad school, and nobody ever used the word soft skills. Nobody ever talked about it. And I just assumed you take those school skills, you know, doing good homework getting good grades and you would just come into a workplace and do what you've been doing. And I did. And without realizing it, you know, that came across as very intense. And my boss, who was the vice president of law at the railroad, Union Pacific Railroad, you know, um, I, they all liked my work, but his assistant who had tremendous informal power, you know, didn't like me because I wasn't, I seemed to not care. I seemed aloof. I seemed to not care about the workplace itself and the people. You know, we forget school, the school, you get your grades, but in the workplace, your reviews are based also on how you, how you treat humans. The workplace is full of human beings and how you deal with those human beings really matters. And I got a very mediocre review and I was stunned. How do I go from getting great grades to getting a mediocre job review? And when I reflected back on that, it just reinforced this idea that success or failure in the workplace, uh, soft skills play a critical role, and we, we just don't talk about it enough. And like you say, we, we don't learn these skills in everybody's defense. You know, we're lucky to have a great mentor or we're lucky to have a realization like you did from a different realm from martial arts. As children, really, we learn these skills in the playground or we learn them from our parents. We don't learn them in the classroom. You know, that's exactly right. If you think about our, our, our upbringings and look back on your childhood, that's exactly right. I'm glad you mentioned the playground because the playground's where we learn those sort of social skills. And if you think back on the playground, you know, uh, it wasn't the nerds that ran the playground. <laughs> Uh, the nerds did well in the classroom, the social people did well in the playground and they were very different groups of people. And oftentimes the nerds were kind of shunned on the playground and there's whole movies about this, right? You know, revenge of the nerds or whatever, uh, movie you want to pick. Um, and in fact, you know, we can do such a better job at blending those in terms of getting someone to understand you know, the sort of holistic side. It's sort of like we artificially separate math skills from verbal skills, social skills. And, and, and these things need to be brought more together in a holistic kind of way. And the educational system does not do that currently. And, and it really would help if we started that much younger, right, to, to unify those things rather than segregate them out. Yeah, and it's, it really struck me, Cash, that we have all these code camps, et cetera, for kids now to cater for the different tastes before it was all about the jocks you know you had all the sports everybody was kind of forced into sports and if they didn't do sports there wasn't very many things for them there was maybe chess clubs there was maybe mathematics but there wasn't there, there, there still does not exist this forum to learn leadership skills or soft skills or eq and ei those kind of skills aren't taught to kids, and it's a massive gulf in the education system. But what I love about what you've done in the book is you simplify 
these skills. You give us a whole load of tips and tools and exercises to hone these skills. One of the reasons I reached out to you for, was for this, because we are seeing this whiplash in society where the people who were more technically skilled and proficient are starting to lead the business world, but they're lacking, in some cases, a lot of these softer skills. You know, that's a very, um, very accurate statement. That's right. So imagine before, you know, the people um, who ran the world, um, you know, were the, actually, were the popular kids from the playground. They got promoted into leadership positions in the workplace because business very much involves working together in teamwork, right? Um, if you have a corporation of 5,000 people or 100 people or 20 people, how well everyone works together, let's call it plays together because play becomes work and work is the new play for us socially. Um, we need those people with great social skills to help us work together. That makes sense. Now you point out this new era, right, that we're in, very much so, where you need technical skills more so than maybe in the past because it's a world uh, of data. It's a world of science much more. You know, we uh, things are shifting and the people, I guess there's a, like a TV show, Silicon Valley, that shows, you know, what it's like when you, you know, when, the, when the guy who's the sort of best coders in charge and he just stumbles on a daily basis with respect to leadership. So um, often you think about people who are leading um, having these skills because historically that's who we promoted. But now you get entrepreneurs and they've got a great idea, but they have no clue because they weren't the ones on the playground. So where do they go to get uh, soft skills? Where do they go to get leadership skills? I think th it's an excellent sort of target for this kind of training. Are those people leading scientific enterprises, leading tech companies, uh, because the tech because these these skills are just certainly not taught at coding camp. Although I, you know maybe it should be a component of coding camp, but it's absolutely true. There's this intense drive now towards tech uh, and the growth of tech and and dataism, and those people are on the opposite end of the spectrum from the playground skills. You say this nicely in the book, you talk about it's like the force in Star Wars, that the force links physical abilities, but also non-physical abilities. And it's this kind of combining of those two skills that we need to see in society. And it'd be great to jump into the book. So you talk at the start about our first task to do is actually redefine what listening means to ourselves. Yeah, I think we think of listening when we think, okay, I'm going to listen we really key in on hearing. It means like, I'm going to, I'm going to pay attention to the words that you use. That's it. So I'm going to work really hard at that. And that's kind of stage one of listening. And most people stop there and they don't get the full, they, they're not getting the bigger picture of, you know, how you're moving your arms and legs. Some people do that a little bit, but mostly when we say, I'm going to really focus on listening. It's like, okay, I'm going to listen. I'm going to hang on every word. And that is such a small part of listening. Listening involves so much more getting the bigger picture. You know, I use an example in the book about if you're sitting in a meeting, you say, I'm going to really listen to Bob and Bob's talking and you stare at Bob and you want to hang on every word Bob has. But what you're missing is how are other people reacting to Bob? 
So not just how Bob is gesticulating or moving his head, but what are the other people doing around him? So he's a listening, uh, redefining listening is a very broader context, taking in more of your senses, not just listening, but looking, right? Getting all your senses, way of trying to feel the vibe. This is what martial artists, great martial artists do very well. It's almost, it's more sensing you know, to be able to sense and great masters can sense things and you can get your skills to this level without, with practicing the skills I talk about in the book, you can get to the point where you can feel what somebody is, where someone's headed and you can feel their message. And there have been a lot of studies done about this, about, you know, well, only 30% is the words they use or even less. It doesn't matter what the exact percentages are. The fact is there's a lot more going on. That's why in our tech world, we've been talking about email. You get emails from people and you don't know how the intonation is. It makes all the difference in the world, how, <laughs> how that was said. But you can't tell from an email, right? So redefining listening means moving more towards sensing, moving more towards using many more of your faculties uh, than just uh, hanging on every word and listening to the words. It's like... You know, things like asking yourself, do the, do the words match the tone? You know, the more the words don't match the tone, then the more your antenna need to quiver that, okay, don't pay attention to those exact words. You know, maybe uh, you have a significant other or a wife and you say everything okay and they say fine. <laughs> okay, now you, now you know it's not fine. <laughs> That famous phone, man. That's a famous phone. <laughs> you know there's an issue. And then you start trying to dig into it. Like, okay, what's wrong? And that kind of makes it worse. But the point is, those words, that word fine doesn't mean fine. And we know it. One of the things I loved that, that you said was, so say, for example, you're presenting or you're making a point within that meeting. And you do zoom out a little bit. You you go up in the helicopter and you look down on the room. You see what's going on. You, you see you see Mary over in the corner. You see John over in the other corner, and they're folding the arms. So most of us will continue to give our speech. We'll continue to deliver our point. But you say in your suggested dialogue boxes at the end of each chapter. In this one, you say we should actually interject there and we should go, I notice you've crossed your arms. Do you disagree? Maybe you don't even have to say cross your arms, but you might go, I notice maybe some of you disagree and you, you interject. Could you, could you fill us in a little bit on that cash? You know, people actually like you to be honest with them. If you know, somebody's checked out, why pretend they haven't? Hey, maybe they've checked out or maybe they disagree, but their body language tells you there's an issue. Could be crossing arms, could be looking away, could be staring out the window. And I have used this technique very effectively. I say, if you're the one talking, you should stop. And somebody say, what do you do when you find out somebody's not listening to you? Well, stop talking. What's the point? <laughs> Unless you just like to hear yourself talk, and most of us do, uh, you stop. And you know what? When you stop, they'll re-engage. If, on the other hand, they're, you can tell they're maybe not happy with what you're saying, just stopping. I mean, we, we engage in a lot of meaningless conversations throughout the workday, probably throughout our lives generally, because we're not worried about communicating. I had a friend say to me recently, and he's from Midland, Texas, which is a very, uh, very uh, Texas city. And I was describing an issue I was having with somebody, 
And he said, did you tell them such and such? And I said, I did. I was very clear. And my friend said, well, I'll tell you what, he didn't hear it. And it was just struck me as so brilliant. You know, it's like, we think because we said something, someone actually heard it. It was just saying, no, 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 I told you. So again, I'll go back to, uh, again, we spent a lot of time communicating with significant others in our life. And for me, as my wife, and, you know, there's things that she says that I never heard. <laughs> so you got to distinguish between, look, I said it and they heard it. There's a great George Bernard Shaw quote, the biggest illusion of communication is the illusion that it's actually happened. <laughs> and it's something that we see the whole time, which leads nicely to your framework that you've created, which is brilliant within the Samurai Listener. You talk firstly about the Woody Allen quote that's 90% of life is showing up, but that has drastically changed. We need to show up fully. We need to be fully aware because the workplace has changed. It's more complex than it's ever been before. It's no longer about shifting widgets from A to B. There's much more involved. We're in this knowledge economy, so we need to use our brains a lot, lot more than we used to. It'd be great, Cash, if you shared the Are You Present framework. It's interesting how this fell into place because I was thinking about all the different aspects of listening. And I got them out and I was looking at it and this sort of juggled them around a little bit and are you present came to me because this is something that is a fair question in today's world just physically alone where people have a pda in their hand 100 percent of the time a computer across from them 95 percent of the time um you know a car with a monitor running you know whenever they're 100 percent of the time they're driving and so the distractions have never been greater you know, you think about the uh, my younger days when uh, newspapers was how people got their news. Nobody would think of opening up a newspaper while they were sitting across from you talking to you and put it over their face. <laughs> but everybody will reach for their PDA without hesitation. And, it, and it's just crazy. But anyway, are you present says awareness and attention. That's certainly what we think of sometimes for listening. It's like, is somebody home? Is somebody showed up? You know, you have your face in the PDA, you're reading the paper, whatever. Uh, reception is the R of are you present? And reception is, you know, this is an internal scrutiny. Are you open to receiving information? Is your mind closed or open? And there's little subtleties here as small as like, what's the person's name? Let's say your sister is Stacy and you fought with Stacy all the time growing up. And this person's name is Stacy. You're going to be almost less receptive, believe it or not to dealing with Stacy than you would with other people. So being aware of your biases, you know, maybe you discriminate against introverts. I found out in an early lesson when I was going to leadership school that I actually discriminated against introverts. And I didn't know that. I just, you know, but I learned that. So now I'm careful with introverts and make a point of asking them questions. So are you receptive? Are you engaged, you know? And, and engagement to me means like ping pong, fair exchange, back and forth, like we're doing here. That's people, if there's no balance, people check out, right? You, they got to participate. They got to be a part of it. And so engagement's extremely important. That's A-R-E, understanding. This is like almost a language thing. You're talking to someone from France. They've got a different culture. You say a word, it means a different thing. The same is true of different areas of the United States. Uh, same is true of different cultures. You know, so there's a 
understanding it's very important to um, to be cognizant of the fact that people often come from a different culture than you do and different mindset. And you need to kind of understand where they're coming from. It's really kind of putting yourself in their shoes a little bit, right? And, and then there's uh, persistence. Um, that's the willingness to sort of stay with a conversation, the willingness to see it through. So often we listen and we get it so quickly that we're done and we just start, we're thinking about something and we just start talking. And this is where, you know, almost the interruption comes from this lack of uh, willingness to sort of see it through. And then uh, resolution, um, which is sort of like, what what's the result of the conversation? I mean, conversations should just be treated much more importantly in meetings. You know, having a resolution kind of as a way of confirming that you had a good exchange and that things are going to come from it. You know, what's the result? Great, great leaders and managers are always thinking about, okay, well, what, what now? What next? What are we going to do? What's the step forward? And that resolution is part of that. Emotions, you know, look, we, we come from the home to the workplace, to a club, to something else. And, and our emotional state is varying throughout the day and being in touch with your own emotions, how, how you feel. And then be, being able to sense someone else's emotions. You know, one thing great martial artists do is they sort of disappear themselves. They're able to sort of neutralize their own emotions so they can feel somebody else, you know. And, and that's pretty advanced, but it's certainly attainable by the, an average person who wants to work on their skills. Is that if you're aware of yourself then you can become a zero and you can feel somebody else and you can get a sense of where they're coming from. So the ability to so, sort of almost disappear is the emotional side. And then I talked about senses, yes, of present senses, you know, making sure you take using all your senses, you know, whether to, to get a sense of uh, a sense of, of where they're coming from. Uh, your ego, you know, People with big egos can be very bad listeners because they just think they have all the good ideas. But you're really hurting yourself if you think you have all the good ideas because you're not going to grow. You grow from learning things from others. We fundamentally learn the most by listening to others. But if we already know all the answers, we're not going to learn anything. So ego is very important. And if you look at great leaders, uh, they put their ego on the shelf and engage with you. Nerves, you know. Man, nerves shut people down. Tension. Uh, we spend a lot of time in the martial arts kind of trying to become tension-free. Again, you can't sense someone else's tension if you're tense. You sort of can't feel beyond yourself. Your own tension gets in the way. It becomes a big block for your ability to hear and feel someone else. And then, you know, everything's got a rhythm. There's a tempo. And people have a tempo. And your ability to sort of engage people at their tempo level um, you know, think of a con great conversation as like a dance. And if you're dancing to rap and they're dancing to a waltz, you know, it's just not going to happen. So you got to try and get in touch with their rhythm and how their speech patterns are coming through. So those are the, are you present? Um, uh, to me, the full aspect of listening, are you, are you aware? And, you know, is the light on somebody home? Are you are receptive to it? Are you engaged in a fair way with it? Are you 
in a position to understand and how well do you confirm understanding of the U, the P for persistence, the willing to stay the course in a conversation, resolution, getting some result that everybody agrees to so that you're working towards something for the future, the E for emotions and being in touch with your own emotions so you can feel someone else's. The S for senses, getting all the senses at play and at work, um, being aware of your ego and putting that on the shelf a little bit so you can get something from it. Believe me, your ego will get, your ego will be there when you get back if you put it on a shelf for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and then the end for nerves and then uh, uh, T for uh, tempo. So are you present is, is my acronym for making sure that you are fully engaged in listening and sensing others in a way that will give you, you know, superior skills in, in the workplace and in your entire life. That's the key, isn't it? I mean, listening is not just a workplace skill, but it's hugely beneficial for workplace. But probably where we will enact it most is at home. Well, you know, there's a theory of human resources called transference, which says basically we take to the workplace where we are and what we have at home. And then, of course, this transference moves the opposite direction, which is, you know, what we have in the workplace we take home. So it moves bi-directionally, this transference. You know, if you um, end your morning with a, a fight with your spouse, uh, you bring in that tension into the workplace and you're still looking to carry it out, yeah? And if you've had a really tough day, man, you know, we tend to take that home and that causes a lot of tension and problems. So there'll be complete carryover as you work on it both places, you see um, things working for yourself. And again, you give great exercises. So it's not just a case of giving the framework and walking away. You give us exercises to bring these into our work, into our lives and start practicing them. I'd love to go through this. So an example you give of how to engage the Are You Present acronym in our worlds is you say practice examples in the workplace so even play back what i w would have done differently and and if you will i might practice here so you give an example of the boss saying for example cash i want you to do some research for me on the our competitors and what they are offering as benefits for their employees a non-leader typical response would be okay when do you need it? Or I'm pretty slammed right now. Can I have a couple of weeks? And you give much better examples that we could engage with. point I'm making in this particular aspect is to, to ask and listen. You know, there's a whole lot of presumptions that take place when you say, when do you need it? It was like, okay, you know, this is a new work for me. It's additional work for me. Okay, I'll do it. But, you know, if you really are willing to sort of ask and listen and just say, you know, well, you know, what's, I, I want to make sure I get this right. What, what's the underlying thing we're looking for? I mean, you can end up answering the wrong question. So you really turn the listening into a way of getting to better results and better quality results because you become an ask and listen person. Say, okay, what, what are we looking for? What, what, what are you hoping to find? What, what's the use of this so that I can direct my uh, research and, and results that way. I mean, so getting, becoming more inquisitive and listening and asking and listening. I think this is one of the most critical success skills that I've seen in people who are extremely successful is it's ask and listen mentality. 
what do you look okay i'd love to do that what um what what's your hope for it or what's the purpose of it what's behind it you may find out that what you were going to answer is totally the wrong the wrong thing if whereas if he says to you well here's or she says to you well you know we've been losing a lot of candidates to other companies and i'm wondering if it's because our benefits aren't as competitive well, that's going to send you in a very different direction. So ask and listen, ask and listen, ask and listen. The number one tip I can give when it comes to listening is be willing to ask, listen, ask again. It's such a key one, again, for sport. So to, let's take it back to sport for a moment. I, I used to coach uh, a rugby team. And one of the things I taught the players was I brought the weights out onto the pitch, onto the training pitch, onto the training paddock. And I showed them why they did certain exercises, like so, for example, clean and jerks, Olympic lifts. And I showed them how those exercises played out on the rugby pitch and their context of doing those exercises entirely changed. It was amazing because they saw the, the, the reason they were doing them and because they, they knew they were beneficial to them on the pitch in the games, which they loved doing, it totally changed their engagement rate. Yes. Exactly. And, you know, and it also gives um, everybody a sense of the meaning behind their work, right? And meaningful work, man, people don't leave necessarily for more money. It's not the number one reason. People leave because they lose kind of the sense of why they're there. And giving people meaningful work, allowing them forward progress because they understand why they're doing what they're doing. They're not. People don't like to be treated like uh, robots, you know? They, we can create robots, and robots perform commands. But human beings, man, I saw, I was watching something, and they called the human beings the last analog device. <laughs> <laughs> That's us, man. That's us. Not for long, I think. <laughs> the last analog device, no matter how you study it, the last analog device. And, and they want to be treated like an analog device, not a machine. So they don't want coding instructions. They want to understand why something's happening and then see how they can sort of contribute to it. That's the human need that's, that's important. It's a nice segue for being human means that we have biases and we're born into biases. We're brought up with this idea of the world is dangerous, don't talk to strangers, etc. And biases can get in the way of listening in a huge way. Yeah, it's um, it's a hidden killer of listening. How's that? You know, it's a it's a hidden killer because you don't even know you're doing it. That's what bi- that's what makes bias scary. Is that if you have a bias against uh, people from a particular state or country or whatever, you know, we form opinions. I mean, we, we, we sort of grow up almost with stereotypes as shortcuts for our ability to understand things. And they're really dangerous and they're really painful. And it's really a, really a bad thing, but it's, everybody has bias. Everybody has these things. What everybody doesn't do well and what you can do well is seek to understand your bias. And the best way to do that is to engage with people you think you might be biased against. Find friends who are from groups that you think you might have some bias against because we're all raised with bias. And 
what bias means is changing very rapidly. You take some people who are older in the workforce, man, you'll still hear them use the term like girls. And you'd be like, well, you know, you can't really say that. That's, you don't refer to them as the girls in the office. Um, and as shocking as it is, but that person was raised in the terminal and with that terminology. So there's two challenges here. One is to be in touch with your biases and two, to recognize the rapid changes about what, how people are to be referred. Um, there's a lot of progress being made on bias, but the best progress you need to make is understanding your own and listening. You know, one thing you can do is the, the people who raised you gave you a lot of biases. And so listening critically to the people you grew up with, the people, your parents, uh, can be great indicators of what your biases are. Just listen to them in a critical way and say, oh my gosh, you know what? My dad doesn't seem to like people from Alabama. (laughs) 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 I notice he makes fun of people from Alabama a lot. Anyway, you need to find ways to uncover your own biases. There goes our Alabama audience, man. Oh, I love people from Alabama. We're all tied. But, Cash, there was something you mentioned earlier on, and it kind of, I, I, I did this, I, I questioned myself on this one, and you talked about, you found out that you were biased against the introvert. Yeah. And when, when, the way you wrote it, I fell into your shoes in a way, and I was kind of going, oh, I didn't see it that way. And it, it really opened my own eyes that, you know, you were in leadership school in, in this case. It'd be great to share that story because it, I thought it was a really, it was a really good eye opener. You know, um, there, like I said, there are so few places anyone tries to teach these soft skills. And yet at the railroad, I was, you know, going to be, I was 28 years old. And back then, you know, in big companies, you didn't put young people in charge of much. They had to basically you, um, in a big corporation, um, and that company is, you know, over a hundred years old when I joined it, you know, what happened was, um, somebody died at the top and everybody moved up one slot, you know, but, uh, I had gotten put in charge of their air freight division at 28 years old. And the nearest stage to me was uh, maybe 50 in the company that I was going to be managing. And so they thought, oh, this is going to be hard. We're going to send them to leadership school. And there was a leadership school, the Center for Creative Leadership. And I went through that program and I'm, I'm very outgoing, very extroverted. And I thought I was doing great and I was getting positive feedback. And, you know, the, the people who were running the program were like, oh, you do very well at running meetings. You do very well at this and that. And, and so there was a final evaluation. And one of the things you were evaluated by was your peers. And I just got... I, I was in my final thing with a psychiatrist or a psychologist and, and, uh, they had this one person come to my evaluation and I was waiting for, you know, straight A's and, you know, I thought, okay, I got pretty good, uh, grades. And, uh, then they introduced this person who was in my group. I recognized them and they said, listen, you know, this is a problem. You need to deal with this. And we want him to express himself. And he said, you know, basically, look, you don't, you don't like me. You, um, you didn't engage with me. And he went on and on and on. I thought, you know what, this person, we went through survival exercises. We went through, uh, joint team exercises and this person never did a thing. And I was often leading those teams. And I told him, I said, you know, I, I understand you, you don't like me and I'm, I'm sorry you don't like me, but I 
have to tell you, we went to Mars and we had to survive. You never said a thing. We went to the moon and we had to survive and you never said a thing. We had this manufacturing implementer exercise and you never said a thing. And what in the world did I possibly do wrong? And he said, well, you never asked. And it was then I realized, oh my gosh. And the psychologist told me, he says, look, here's the problem, Cash. You discriminate against introverts. This is an introvert. And introverts have as high an IQ or higher, some studies say, than extroverts. And if you're not listening to an extrovert, you know, you're not listening the way we're talking about. If you're not listening to an introvert, you're not asking. Ask and listen, ask and listen, ask and listen. These people have so much to contribute. And that was a stark realization to me. as like, wow, I, I would have told you I don't discriminate against anybody. I love everybody. I have no idea what you're talking about. And here this person sat across from me and, and was sure I hated him and thought nothing of him. And as a result, he hated me. And it was like, wow, what an insight. It really was. And it was for me as well, I have to admit, because I, I questioned then, how do I show up in meetings like that? And it, it's often, you know, you say it's either the person with the loudest voice or the hippo, the highest paid person in the room who actually commands the floor. And therefore, decision making isn't done holistically. It's not taken into account of everybody who's giving their input because we could be quieting people who are really, really skilled and have huge insights to give. Exactly. And really, we're not listening to them. Now you think, well, I thought listening was hearing. No, no, no. Listening's engaging. It's all those things we talked about in Are You Present? So you're not listening to this person because to listen to this person, you need to ask. <laughs> and they've got a lot to contribute. When we're talking about bringing ourselves to meetings, et cetera, and maximizing the meetings, you talk about how emotions can be key, a key skill and that the word karate means empty hand. So you don't get emotional when there's a weapon introduced, for example, and that by avoiding triggering emotions ourselves, we can be in full cognitive state, we can be in our full selves in a conversation, in a discussion, or a negotiation. Now, and you, you have a good knack for pulling out some really great stuff, by the way. This is a really excellent thing that I care about greatly. And this, this goes back to this issue of, you know, if you come into some meeting with your shields up, everybody's shields go up. You know, we're human. We can sense it. We can sense tension. We can sense emotion. You can look at someone changes their face slightly. You can sense the emotion. If I showed you a picture of someone who's angry, you'd know they're angry. If I showed you a picture of someone who's sad, you'd know they're sad. This is one of the first skills we pick up is sensing someone's emotions. And it's so important to, to understand that what you bring is what you get. You know, there was a TV show when I was younger called Columbo. It was a fantastic detective show Peter Falk starred in. And he came in with shields down, wearing a trench coat, with a cigar in hand, just a, hey, how you doing? You know, and, it, and everybody dropped their shields and he could figure out who the murderer was because everybody talked to him, trusted him. You come into a sales call, you come into a meeting, shields up, I'm here to sell you, I'm here to tell you, and everybody else's shields go up. And the quality of communication goes down. And your ability to take things in goes down. And the extent to which people are listening to you all goes down. So 
this is extremely important. Being able to come in tension-free, emotion-free. People, we're still pretty good at mimicking others. And so what you bring is what you get. I love that. And and you talk as well about how in jujitsu, in art that you practice, that you understand the pain inflicted. And by understanding the pain inflicted, you know what it's like to be the opponent. And therefore, you have a much more robust attacking style. You use this as a brilliant analogy for how to come to every meeting, every discussion, every act of communication. Yeah, jujitsu is one of my favorite martial arts. I practice it every week. And I, I love the back and forth. You learn how to submit somebody. You submit somebody, you show them how you did it. Somebody submits you, they show you how they did it. And so you, you really get the feelings back and forth of what it's like to be on both sides of an equation. And you used the term earlier, which I liked, which is like helicoptering above a meeting. Once you understand and feel the give and take, then you can step back from it and, and watch it happening and understand you know, what's taking place on the both give and the take side. So I consider this uh, ability, and it, it goes to you know the are you present, the understanding side. Does this hurt? Does that hurt? How does that feel? That's the kind of level of engagement you need to really understand somebody. There's this constant checking of, is that working? Is that not working? How do you feel? I mean, if you tried this with your significant other, with your spouse, if you tried this, how are you, how's that feeling? Is that working? You know, you get to that level of engagement and you're going to have a happy life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> happy wife, happy life, man. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. There's, there's a really nice one I, I'd love to finish on cash. And Bob Proctor talks about this, what he calls the law of vibration and it's interlinked with the law of attraction. And he talks about the fact that if, for example, if you were to line two pianos side by side and hit a key on one of the pianos, the same key will resonate on the other piano. And he talked about how in sales, for example, that the first thing we need to do is to get on the same frequency as somebody. Because when we're on the same frequency, then they're open to listen to us and Mm. absorb our information. But if we go in selling 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 again like you say the shields come up right but but i thought it was i thought it was a lovely way to interlink with what you talk about which is the art of remembering because by remembering someone's name or remembering the context or having taken great notes and coming back prepared to a meeting people respect you more and when they respect you more they're more open to listening to you and maybe receiving information on a sale or a negotiation, et cetera. I'd love if you shared that with us. That's a wonderful, wonderful discussion topic because I, I really got into memorization and mnemonic techniques and applying them to listening. And I even competed in the USA memory championship, uh, this year in April. Um, you, you, you learn about, um, the importance of the big picture you can actually take and associate things you're hearing with things in the room. Um, taking a person, you know, more fully into play allows you to remember, you know, kind of what kinds of things they've said and are saying, understanding people's roles, all these things work together when it comes to remembering. So the entire skill set of are you present can help you 
listen and remember things because you're taking in through seven channels rather than through one channel. And so it's kind of a great summary of everything all together. And you've experienced this yourself. If you think about conversations you've remembered, you see it in your mind's eye. You can, you can play it back for yourself. Well, that's because you were present. You were totally present and engaged using more senses. Um, there was a good back and forth, etc. So using all those techniques together will cause you to remember vividly your entire exchange. Cash, is there any exercises you suggest for us, some really simple ones maybe, that we can take away with us at, uh, for today's show? Yeah, I'll give a, a homework assignment. And my homework assignment is, for the next, try it for a week or try it for a day and try and make everything that you say a question. Because if you're in a work environment, a home environment, you're talking and you're anxious to talk. But why don't you do this? Whether it's a day, two days, three days. I gave the assignment once to some people I was teaching a class on negotiation. I said, make it all week and see how that works for you. Become an ask and listen person. For a week but if you can't do it for a week try it for a day but that'd be a that's a great exercise and then write a reflection each night just a paragraph to yourself how to work today how was it being an ask and listen person instead of a talking person that would be a simple exercise forward for a day or a week that will astonish you in terms of how differently people deal with you You'll get better looking, you'll get uh, smarter, people will respect you more. It's just a simple switch in mentality from a teller to an asking listener. Brilliant, Cash. And where can people find out more about you, your work, your books, etc.? The easiest and best place is cash, um, cashnickerson.com. My email, cash at cashnickerson.com. And the book is available in all the channels. <clears throat> certainly online, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, et cetera. And, uh, and I have in the book a 90 days, uh, listening improvement plan. So I call it a lip <laughs> listening improvement plan. Uh, and I, I highly recommend, uh, engaging in this improvement and it'll change your life. Author of the samurai listener, Cash Nickerson. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.